would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2. And while you're doing that with one hand, I invite you to take the other hand and turn in the hymnals in the chairs around you to hymn number 203. We're taking a break from our uh, regular sermon series in the book of Ephesians as we are in the season of Advent. And we are looking at uh, some of the much beloved hymns of Advent and really trying to do three things in our series this month. Trying to understand some words of some of these very familiar hymns to us so that we can know better what we're singing. But most importantly, we're using the hymns as a window into the story of uh, Christmas, the story of the Lord's birth that we celebrate, that we remember, that we reflect on this month as we prepare for His second coming. Uh, we look into the Word of God to see what it tells us about the birth of the Savior. And then lastly, seeing the scriptural background of these hymns and having the scriptures enrich our singing of these hymns. And today we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 in particular. And those are verses that uh, Charles Wesley pulled out as he wrote one of his probably best known hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was written by Wesley in the 18th century. It's one of the hundreds of hymns that he wrote, but one of his very best for sure. Uh, Originally, it had 10 verses. So you'll be thankful there are only three in our Trinity hymnal version uh, this morning. Uh, It is considered by most hymnologists as one of the three to four greatest hymns of all time. Not simply Advent hymns, but hymns of all times. It's certainly one of the most popular uh, survey done of some 60 to 65 different Protestant denominations, almost every single one of them had this hymn in their hymnal. And the tune that is so familiar and beloved by us, written by Felix Mendelssohn. So before we think about uh, some of the things that Wesley shares with us, where we're going to start is where we should start, and that is in God's Word. So let's look at Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, but focusing today on verses 13 and 14 in particular. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us as your people. We thank you for inspiring Luke to write it in just the way that you desired. We thank you for watching over and preserving it over these many years so that we could have in front of us today your word and that we can read it, that we can be reminded of these wonderful and glorious truths and that you, by your work through the Spirit, applying the word to us, would fill us with hope and peace today. We ask you would do it because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an interesting story in the news this past week. It was a story that took place sometime recently in the state of Assam in India. The state bank of India, uh, the branch manager in that area, a, a man named Chandam Sharma, was interviewed about a very unusual experience that had happened, an event that took place with one of their ATM machines there at the specific bank where he served. Uh, The particular ATM ATM machine had been out of order for a few days, and so they had called on the technicians to come and to repair the machine. And when the technicians arrived, they opened up the ATM and the machine, and they found out what the problem was. Almost half of the bills that were inside had been shredded to confetti. You can imagine they were startled, they didn't know what was happening, and so they began to investigate. And as they investigated, they found the culprit. Somehow, a rat had squeezed inside, undetected, to the ATM machine. Had not only made a nest in the machine itself, but had chewed and shredded about half of all of the bills inside of the machine. 1.2 million rupees, which translates to about $20,000 in money, was lost. Eventually, they found the rat amidst all of the confetti, shriveled and stiff. Literally, consumed money until it died. The bank officials indicated that while no foul play is suspected, we can still laud the daring creature for swimming through a sea of hard cash, paying with its life for what was presumably a long-held dream. (laughs) It's an interesting story, isn't it? Somewhat of a picture, an image for us. How... So many of us and how easily we look to money for peace, for contentment, for fulfillment, for happiness, for hope in this life. So much of our lives are consumed with the pursuit of money, with the control of money in order that we might be happy and filled with hope. But we know that it can never ultimately provide that for us. We tend to look to lots of things for a sense of peace and hope in this world. Maybe for you it's not money. But it could be almost anything in this life that we could wrap our hopes and our dreams and our desires, uh, the very essence of who we are around to try to have hope in peace in this world. And it's nothing new. This is an ancient problem. 
In order to understand the context of our passage this morning, we need to know a little bit of how God's people and how all the people in the first century had a hope for peace in this life. If you know anything about the history of this time, you know that uh, this was a time that was considered as a Pax Romana. It's a Latin phrase meaning Roman peace. It's alluding to this idea of the Roman Empire and its glorified and peaceful prime. It was a prolonged time of relative peace and glory in what was really the largest empire the world had ever seen. It was established by Caesar Augustus, the same Caesar Augustus you see in verse 1 of chapter 2 in in Luke. From 27 BC to about 100 AD, the Roman Empire enjoyed a a sense of peace uh, across the empire. But it wasn't a peace for all of the people. Many never saw it or felt it. The peace for the empire was bought through the oppression of many people. Epictetus, the Greek Stoic philosopher who was also a contemporary of Luke, said that while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion and grief and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even just outward peace. Both then and now, there is a longing for true, deep, lasting, inward and outward peace and hope in this life. And there is much in the world then and today that promises us peace. But those things are incapable of giving us the kind of peace that we truly need. As we remember and celebrate the first advent, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we we hear about a peace, a hope. But this is not a peace like the Pax Romana. This is a Pax Christus, a peace of Christ, a peace achieved through his birth and life and death and resurrection that fills us with a peace and a hope as we wait for his second advent. What Luke tells us here that happened uh, just after the passage that we looked at last week with this angel that showed up and started speaking to the shepherds and telling them this wonderful story. Uh, We come in verses 13 and 14 to what happened immediately after that. And what happened immediately after that is also what Wesley picks up here in this hymn. Hark the herald angels sing. Where this angelic choir tells of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we'll see this morning is that Jesus' coming was for God's glory and for peace on earth. And for God's people in particular. So first of all, let's look and see what we read about in Luke chapter 2 about how Jesus came for God's glory. We read that with the one angel that was speaking to the shepherd, shepherds, suddenly in verse 13, there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. The word host there is a military term. It it, it has a sense of an army. And what we're being told here is that literally an army of angels showed up suddenly without any kind of warning. All of a sudden there is this 
this army of angelic creatures. You can imagine how overwhelming and startling and frightening it must have been. But this army of angels was not bringing an announcement of war. They were bringing an announcement of the glory of God. These are the angels who have been with Christ in heaven from before His incarnation. They know about His glory, His riches, His majesty. They know about the fall of man because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They know how much Christ lowered Himself to be born as a man into this world. They understand the One who is rich beyond all comprehension, becoming poor and humble for the purpose of saving sinners. And they stand in awe of God's amazing and incredible and marvelous love and grace. And as they reflect on it all, they sing praise to God, glory to God in the highest. It's what Wesley tried to capture in the very first line of his hymn. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. That's actually not the, the original version of what Wesley wrote. His original version was, Hark how all the welkin rings. And your furrowed brows uh, show that that's, you understand why he changed the wording of it. In fact, it was actually some of his good friends, George Whitfield included, that told him he was using an old English archaic phrase of welkin. And no one's going to know what that means, even back then. The welkin was the sense of the entirety of the cosmos. Reaching up into the very presence of God. And so he changed it to hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. But the sense is the same. The birth of Jesus was for the purpose of the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest. Showing us the extent of its space and time but also of its intensity. The skies, the heavenly places beyond, all of creation gives glory to God in the highest. And as we remember, as we reflect, as we celebrate on the birth of our Savior, it should cause each and every one of us to glorify the Lord in the highest of our hearts and souls. But that doesn't happen very much this season. Instead... I become more and more convinced that I call us functional narcissists. I realize that there's a classical clinical definition of narcissism. It's an official diagnosis. It has to do with an excessive interest in oneself, an extreme self-obsession, a self-centeredness to the extreme. But my suggestion to us this morning is that we live like narcissists, even if we haven't been officially diagnosed as such. Everything in our lives is focused around us. Our happiness, our contentment, our satisfaction, our peace is so often related to our circumstances in life and how we feel about them. And often the season of Advent and the celebration of the Lord's birth can often be focused on me and what I'm doing and even how I'm interacting with other people. We have a focus on parties and presents and traveling and food and music and time with friends and family. And all of those are wonderful things. 
I enjoyed a wonderful party last night that was anything but narcissistic. It was pointing us to the service and glory of God. But all of these wonderful things should do that. They should point us to God's glory above everything and not detract from it. I've shared with you before a flyer that I received in the mail at some point in the past. I actually was looking for it this week and I can't find it. But it's a flyer that is an advertisement for a child's storybook. And on the title, there's this little boy holding this book. Uh, It says, It's My Christmas. And the, the, the company that puts this book out, uh, the way that it works is that you, you give the company information about your child, various details that they ask for, friends, names, ages, things that they enjoy doing. And then they put all of those details into this storybook uh, and uh, it's a focus on the child. And on the cover of this flyer, there's this little boy holding this book that says, it's, it's my Christmas. And there's this exclamation from the kid saying, it's about me. In so, so many ways that typifies, I think, how this world thinks about this Christmas season, the season of Advent. Even if we won't state it as such. How we live our lives is so much, it's about me. Christians can even act this way, not just during the season of Advent, but just in relation to our faith and our sense of salvation in general. There's a tendency for the Christian faith, faith in Christ, to become about what we get. That we get eternal life. That we get forgiveness of our sins. That we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the focus sometimes can become more about what we get from God than on giving God the glory that He so richly deserves. Even our own salvation is not primarily about us. It is about God receiving the glory that He deserves. The birth of the Savior brought an army of angels to sing and declare the glory of God. So God's glory must be front and center in our thoughts as we remember and celebrate His first advent and prepare for His second advent. Another reason why Jesus came wasn't simply to help us to see the glory of God and to point our attention to it, but also for the earth's Peace. You see what the second line of the hymn that these angels were singing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. What kind of peace are they talking about? Are they talking about a peace of mind? Peace and easy circumstances of life? Financial peace? World peace? Well, context is always helpful to us. And if we look back into Luke, and you scan back to the end of chapter 1, you'll see from chapter 1, verses 57 through the end of the chapter, that that section of Luke's retelling us of the story, excuse me, of the story, is uh, helping us to see what happened with uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son, John the Baptist. You'll remember that Elizabeth, a relative of Mary, was told that she too would have a child. And Zechariah, her husband, 
found it hard to believe. And as the angel Gabriel himself visited them to give them this message, told Zechariah that he would not be able to speak for nine months as the child was growing in Elizabeth's womb. But then the child was born and Zechariah's lips were loosed and he broke into praise and worship and prophecy. And what we read in verses 67 or 68 and following is, are the words that Zechariah said as his mouth was opened and he was able to speak. And he begins to talk about the fact that God should be praised and glorified because he has remembered his holy covenant with his people. He's speaking about his son, John, who would go before the promised Messiah, the one who would fulfill the holy covenant with God, between God and his people. And look at what he says in verses 76 and following. And you, child, speaking about John the Baptist, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the peace that he's speaking about? Well, what did he say? It is a peace that brings us the forgiveness of our sins. The tender mercies of our God. That's the peace that is being spoken of. It's the peace that the angels are singing about back in chapter 2, verse 14. We also can think about what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1. Again, talking about Jesus coming and all that he accomplished. In chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 19, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is the peace that is being spoken of by Paul? What is the peace that the angels are singing, singing about? What is the peace that Jesus came to establish? It is a peace that is through his blood of the cross it is a peace, it is a reconciliation between God and His people through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a peace that makes us presentable as holy and blameless and above reproach before our Father in heaven. The angels are singing not about some temporal, circumstantial peace like the Pax Romana, so easy and enjoyable life of peace. They are talking about peace between us and Almighty God. Wesley gets at that in verse 1, the second line. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. In fact, two-thirds of this hymn, all of chapter of verse 2 and all of verse 3, are focused on telling us about this Messiah who came to bring us this peace of reconciliation between God and us. Look at what he says in verse 2. Christ, by heaven, heavenest, heaven adored, 
Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This Messiah who comes to bring us peace with God has been adored by heaven He is an everlasting Lord, sovereign and almighty. He is long awaited. He is born from the virgin. Nothing short of a miracle. Looking at him, you see God. He is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. He is Emmanuel, God with us in our midst. He is the heaven born Prince of Peace, referring to Isaiah 9. He is the son of righteousness, referring to Malachi 4. He is the one who brings light and life to all from Psalm 27 and John 1. He is the one who has risen with healing in his wings from Malachi 4. He is the one who humbly lays his glory by and born like one of us from Isaiah 52 and Philippians 2. He's the one as he ends verse 3 to conquer death, accomplish resurrection and change our hearts with rebirth. The Messiah comes to bring peace to earth, but not just any kind of peace. It is a peace. It is a reconciliation between God and man. And before we move on to the last point that I want us to consider this morning, I want you just to reflect on the reality of that and one thing that it means for us today. Because the peace that is being sung by the angels, because of the peace that Jesus came to establish being a peace between us and God, A reconciling peace because that's the peace that has been secured for us. That means that when the circumstances of our lives are filled with a lack of peace and we're tempted to think that God must be angry with us and upset with us and we're tempted to doubt God's love and acceptance, we can know that our peace with Him is still true. That the status of our relationship is not in question. Or in other words, if the peace that Jesus came to bring was related to our circumstances and our ease and our comfort in life, then when life is not easy, we could rightly wonder, is God angry with us? Is God dissatisfied with us? Maybe he's not powerful enough to oversee and overrule my difficult circumstances. But if the peace that Jesus came to achieve is a peace between God and us, a reconciling peace, then the circumstances of our life don't ever change that. So it gives us hope in the midst of the difficult life circumstances that we endure. We might lastly ask for whom Jesus purchased this peace. It seems it would be helpful to know that. And the angels provide the answer for us at the end of their little hymn here in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see that this peace is for God's people. It's a peace that's achieved for a specific group of people. This is actually a very difficult phrase to translate out of the Greek. And there are many different translations that have tried it very different ways. 
Some translations uh, uh, translate this phrase, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Uh, Some translate it, peace on earth among men of goodwill. But those aren't the best, most accurate translations of what the Greek says. Our ESV version actually does a pretty good job of it. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The sense is that on earth there is peace between God and those who are the objects, who are the recipients of his good, of God's good pleasure. Peace comes to those who are blessed by the goodwill and gracious pleasure of God. Those who have been redeemed by Christ Jesus. He's not singing, these angels are not singing about some generic, unspecified peace for all people, regardless of their belief. But for those who believe in God and love Him. Who trust in the righteousness of the Messiah who has come. There are those who are indifferent or disbelieving in Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the King who calls for their complete allegiance, then there is no peace. And interestingly, that's not reflected anywhere in Wesley's hymn. But the reality of this peace and who it is for means that there's a call for us this morning. A call to respond to this this hymn of praise and glorying of God that the angels are singing. And that call is reflected in Wesley's hymn in verse 1, lines 3 and 4. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. The call is for us, who would hear about this wonderful peace that has been achieved through the Lord Jesus Christ's first coming, and the hope and the peace that it fills us with now as we await for us to believe in this wonderful gospel and to rise up to stand up and be numbered with the angelic host in giving glory to God in the highest. To join our voices with theirs in glorifying God because of this amazing peace that He has secured through the coming of the Messiah. So as we end this morning, can I just try to apply that a couple different ways? For some here this morning, perhaps you need to do that for the first time. Humbling yourself, recognizing that there is one greater than you who deserves glory above all things. Recognizing that apart from a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is enmity. There is a lack of peace between us and the Creator God because of our sin. Confessing how we run after many things in this world to give us peace and hope and to acknowledge that there is no true lasting eternal and satisfying peace and hope in this world without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ but secondly and lastly I think there's a call here for all Christians as well what are the ways that we as God's people need to humble ourselves so that God gets all the glory Rather than us. I'd encourage you to use this season to reflect on our selfishness. 
reflect on the ways that our lives don't really show that we believe that God's glory is more important than anything else, including our own glory. To reflect during this season our lack of a desire to know our Lord and His gospel more deeply. There's this interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter's talking about the gospel. And as he comes uh, to an end of a particular thought in 1 Peter 1, he talks about this gospel and he says this gospel that the angels long to look into. It's the same angels that are singing this wonderful hymn at the birth of the Savior. These ones who, who know all of these things and, and, and they, they long to plumb the depths of the knowledge of God and the wonders of His gospel of grace. Is that true of us? Is that true of us as God's people? who have been redeemed by that gospel, who have experienced it firsthand, do we have that kind of hunger and desire to know our God more deeply and as a result, to give Him greater glory that He richly deserves? Let's pray together. Father, what a scene it must have been when those angels showed up. Our imaginations go wild as we try to think of what that must have looked like. I pray, Father, that as you would grab our hearts and our imaginations about what that scene must have been like and how terrifying it must have been on the one hand and yet how encouraging, how hopeful it must have been to hear those angels sing about the peace that would be established not just through the birth, but through the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help, help that to grab our hearts, our imaginations, our very souls during this season and spur us on as your people. Spur us on to root out our selfishness. Cause us to more deeply desire to, more deeply desire to know you and to understand this gospel of your grace and mercy that we might truly glorify you and enjoy you in greater ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in the Gospel of Matthew that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Over the last couple of months, I've been trying to read several different resources and just thinking about the Lord's Supper and all that it means and recently came across a section of a book that was written by a pastor acquaintance uh, of mine. Uh, he's a, uh, a man, a pastor who teaches college students on a regular basis. And in his class, he actually gets to a section where he teaches about the Lord's Supper and how it works. 
And when he gets to that section, he was talking about in this book how he likes uh, to tell them and to get them thinking about how the Lord's Supper doesn't convey any new information or any new content about the gospel, about Christ's work and all that he came to do. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't convey anything of special significance for us. And to sort of help them to get to understand that, he has a thought experiment that he he leads them through, an illustration that he talks to them about. And it's related to his wife's birthday. He talks about the fact that every day of the year he tells his wife, I love you. He says that to her intentionally every single day of the year. But on her birthday... He goes out of his way to get her a present. Now, the present presupposes his love for her, his relationship with her. And it doesn't alter his love. The the present that he gives her doesn't alter his love. It doesn't change the status of their marriage. But, he assumes, because he's never tried this experiment out, if he were ever to forget that present, forget her birthday... It would immediately have an impact on their relationship. The words that he speaks to her and the gift that he gives her on her birthday don't convey any new information. They don't change the status of their marriage. Actually, the words in the the present convey exactly the same reality. How much he loves her and how much they are in a loving relationship, covenant relationship together. But the words and the gift convey the same information in different ways. Both important to to the maintenance of their relationship, even though the words that he speaks to her about his love for her are probably even more important than that present. So we come to the Lord's Supper, and we have the Word of God, and we have the Lord's Supper, both pointing us to Christ, to His birth and death and resurrection and ascension, The blessing of what it is to be united to Christ by faith. And the word has priority because it teaches us about what that uh, gospel message is. But the Lord's Supper is still important for us. It makes what the word tells us even more real to us in different ways, in powerful ways. Showing us the sign and the seal of being united to Christ. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been baptized and you've connected yourself to connected yourself to a Bible-believing evangelical church, then we would invite you as the elements are coming around to eat and to drink and to remember, but also to know that as you come in faith, trusting in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit is, is upon you and through this very ordinary mundane activity, strengthening us, reminding us of the wonderful truth of the gospel and sending us out to be people filled with peace and hope. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord's Supper, this means of grace. Thank You for giving it to us, helping us to understand the Word, helping us to understand the Gospel as we eat and drink in faith, trusting in our Savior. Strengthen us, Father, we pray. Help us. Help us to be able to live our lives to your glory above everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.